2: On this episode of Newt's World, I want to spend some time talking about the extraordinary difficulty that democracies have dealing with evil and the degree to which Putin clearly can be characterized as evil. I wanted to take time to talk today about what I think is a very disturbing but in many ways, historically normal process. And that is the difficulty that free societies and democracies have in identifying and confronting evil. It's not a new thing, but as I've watched Putin, I've thought a lot about what we have tolerated from this guy. He sends his agents to London to kill an anti-Putin Russian and does so deliberately using a radioactive poison, which is only made in Russia, just to make sure all of us get that this was done by the Russians. He most recently, about a year ago, tried to kill another guy who survived it, but he and his daughter were both very sick from the effort to poison them in Britain. This is a guy who has gone out of his way to make sure that journalists and investigators were killed. He has proven in his attack on Georgia, followed by his annihilation of the city of Grozny in Chechnya, followed by his use of mass terror weapons, including chemical weapons, in Syria, and now the way he's campaigning in Ukraine, that he knows no bounds, and that the civilized world, as we would like to call ourselves, hasn't had the courage to confront him and establish bounds. So we've watched war crime, after war crime, after war crime, and done nothing. And with each ineffective effort, he's grown stronger. There is a sad grim joke that Viktor Pinchuk, the oligarch from Ukraine who has been a deep, deep advocate of democracy and freedom, wrote about in the Wall Street Journal, where he said the Europeans are in danger of running out of blue and white paint because they're painting everything symbolically in favor of Ukraine. And he said, it's a tragic joke Ukrainians tell each other, because what they want are aircraft, surface-to-air missiles, anti-tank missiles, artillery, things that are practical and real in a war. And what they're getting are psychological moments of sympathy, which is not what they want at all. This has been compounded by the United States, which was once upon a time... A truly heroic country, a country prepared to take on evil, and a country prepared to run great risk for freedom, and which has become pathetically incompetent on a scale that I personally would not have dreamed possible. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But let me talk about this general problem because this is not a new problem. We saw in the 1930s that the democracies simply couldn't bring themselves to confront and stop the fascist powers, particularly Italy and Germany, all through the mid and late 30s as they rose in prominence. So the Italians waged war in what was called Abyssinia, now Ethiopia, and the Germans and the Italians sided with the fascists in Italy against the Republican government in a long, bitter, vicious civil war. And the democracies, particularly France and Britain, were incompetent, timid, Cautious. When Hitler militarized the Rhineland in 1935, which was a violation of the Versailles Treaty, the Allies did nothing. Now, technically, at that point, there was a huge French army, there was a substantial British military. The Germans had a very, very weak force in 1935. They could have crushed Hitler, and they did nothing. When they had Anschluss and Austria became part of Germany, they did nothing. When It was quite clear that they were re-establishing an air force, which was a violation of the Versailles Treaty. The democracies did nothing. When Hitler then made his demands on Czechoslovakia, the British and French went to Munich to offer him concessions. And they kept thinking, somehow he will be reasonable. Somehow we can appease him. And it's important to remember, appeasement in the 1930s was not a negative term. It was an effort to find what it would take to allow Germany to re-enter a system where there was a general agreement that the Versailles Treaty was too harsh, had punished the Germans too much, and there was sort of a sympathy for the German point of view. This was also a Europe which was in a state of shock because when Lenin and his revolution took over in Russia, the whole threat, the specter of communism sweeping over all of Western Europe was very real. And so... The establishments in all of these countries were less afraid of Hitler than they were of Stalin. They were less afraid of Nazism and fascism than they were of communism. And they were very divided in what they should do and how they should do it. The result was that when the democracies had massive, overwhelming power, they lacked the psychological courage to do anything. And by the time they had no choice, the Germans had grown stronger And the German-Italian combination was enough that there was a series of stunning victories by Germany, which literally came close to dominating Europe permanently. The one person in Britain who understood all this was Churchill. And that was for, I think, two very different reasons. The first was that Churchill had actually read Mein Kampf, which is the book Hitler wrote while he was in jail in 1924 after an attempted coup in Munich. And Hitler's quite clear about who he is. He's nuts. He wants to dominate all of Europe. He wants living space, Lebensraum, for the German people. And the way he's going to get Lebensraum is he's going to occupy Ukraine, Poland, Russia. He needs oil. And the way he's going to get oil is he's going to take it from Romania. And then he's going to drive to the Caucasus and take the Russian oil fields. And in the process, he intends to wipe out the Jews, the gypsies, and people who are born with disabilities. And people tend to forget that the earliest phase of the Nazi process of eliminating people actually began with children with Down syndrome and children with birth defects, and that this was a very clear, deliberate strategy, tragically process of improving the species by eliminating people with disabilities, which had actually in the West had substantial intellectual support as a way of scientifically this is why I always have to worry when the left says science. You have to sort of worry about what's coming next, because this was the scientific theory of the 1920s. In that context, Churchill understood that Hitler was evil by any reasonable standard. There was a second factor. Churchill's the last great Victorian statesman. He was old enough. He was deeply embedded in his father's career, and his father had been the number two leader, the chancellor of the exchequer in the 1880s. And so Churchill, who served in the army in India and in Egypt and in Sudan, and then served as a reporter covering the war in South Africa with the Boers, Churchill really was in many ways a throwback. He was aggressive, pugnacious, courageous, willing to fight. Well, all of his contemporaries were exhausted. World War I had killed so many young British men that there was just a general horror at the idea of another war. The French had a very deep pattern of people who really wanted to do almost anything to avoid fighting. The Oxford Union, the Young Students Debating League, had actually voted by a substantial majority in the early 1930s, they would not fight, let me repeat, not fight for king and country. Most of them, of course, in the end, joined the Royal Air Force and did fight, but at the moment, that was the mood. And so in a very real sense, Stanley Baldwin and then Neville Chamberlain represented the attitude of the people. There were two really good reasons. One was that they were exhausted and they were frightened and they did not want another bloodletting. And the other is that in a free society, it is extraordinarily hard to confront evil because the very essence of a free society is a belief in each other. We can argue, we can talk, we can find a way to have a compromise we can get along. And so it's really hard when you have civil wars, you begin to approach a level of distancing, which makes it possible to think about how bad people can be. But as a general rule in a free society, there's really a very high premium on being positive and on not thinking evil thoughts and not thinking your opponent is bad. And so people say, well, surely we can be reasonable. Well, we discovered in the 1930s, that you couldn't be reasonable with Hitler, you couldn't be reasonable with Mussolini, and ultimately, you couldn't be reasonable with the Imperial Japanese. And certainly, you couldn't be reasonable with Stalin, but that would come later, because in the short run, Stalin was our ally, and therefore, he was Uncle Joe, an attitude which disappeared sometime in 1945, as the war ended, and we suddenly remembered that Uncle Joe, in fact, was a deeply committed communist dictator who had killed tens of millions of people. The Cold War was a remarkable achievement in part because we were able to sustain a belief that the Soviet Union was dangerous and a belief that communism was dangerous, which in a free society is very hard, because it meant that people had to go out of their way, whether they volunteered to serve in the military, they paid higher taxes, they accepted restrictions on their freedom. People had to sustain what was in effect a diplomatic, military, economic competition that was extraordinary. And it lasted from basically 1945 to the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And then we sort of went on vacation. We're the dominant country in the world. Nobody could stand up to us. And for about a 20-year period, we didn't worry much about the world. That was the problem for Washington, not for the average American. And then gradually, slowly, the rise of China and the rise of Putin has forced us to realize that recess is over, that the great happy period of not thinking is done, and that we have to go back to dealing with a world in which there are genuine dangers and genuine evil. And by the way, at least in my mind, this problem of evil exists as much at home as abroad. When a man knifes two people at a museum of art in New York, there's something wrong. When a serial killer goes around shooting five or six homeless people, there's something profoundly wrong. When a man who has been arrested 17 times and released kills a 24-year-old student while she's working in a store in Los Angeles, there's something wrong. And it's our inability to deal with evil at home, to deal with evil in terms of terrorism, or to deal with evil in terms of organized leaders like Putin that makes it very, very dangerous for democracies. Because if you allow evil to grow if you allow it to become acceptable behavior, the world becomes very harsh and very dangerous. We're seeing it at home with crime right now. We're seeing it at home with tolerating fentanyl, which is killing people, literally killing people. We're seeing it in the way in which we deal with China and Russia.
0: From BBC Radio 4,
1: LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. The
0: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn.
2: And so let me focus in on Putin because he's the current example. Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party is in the long run a greater danger, a more powerful competitor, and a country we are going to have no choice except to deal with and to think through and to successfully compete with. But in the short run, because Russia does have 6,000 nuclear weapons, even though it has a very weak economy, even though it has a a dictatorial government based on basically a kleptocracy of just stealing. Even though in a genuinely free election, Putin would have a very hard time winning, he's not going to have a genuinely free election. And he has a secret police that's very competent. He was himself a member of the secret police. And one of the things you have to worry about in Ukraine is that Putin served in East Germany at the very high peak of the Soviet empire, He knows how to create a satellite state. He knows how to take over a country and how to organize its police force to ensure that it does what it wants. So now you have the case of Putin, a genuine case study in somebody who by any reasonable standard is evil. And when I say evil, I mean he bombs a maternity hospital as a deliberate act of terror. And this is literally what happened, I think, in Ukraine is that they made an enormous mistake in Moscow. They assumed that the Ukrainian people were timid and ineffective, and they assumed that the Ukrainians would collapse. So General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said that the Russians would be in Kiev in three days, and I think that Putin probably believed he was going to be in Kiev in three days. Well, both Milley and Putin were wrong, and the reason they were wrong was because of the Ukrainian people who decided to fight. And something had happened from the time that Russia seized Crimea and seized the eastern region around Donbass. And that is, in the ensuing period of warfare, what happened over the last eight years is people who used to be pro-Russian became Ukrainian. So they suddenly found, I suspect to their great shock, that even in the most Russian ethnic parts of Ukraine— nobody wanted Putin. They had now decided they given a choice between his dictatorship and the quality of life in Moscow. And what was happening in Ukraine, which for all of its corruption and all of its difficulties, was an open society where people were able to deal with the West, where they had tourism, where they had investments, where they were beginning to get real economic growth. And as they were forced to choose... They just steadily became Ukrainian. So in a very bizarre way, Putin's aggressiveness has actually created a Ukrainian nationalism, which is much greater than you could have imagined. So he was faced with the reality after about five or six days that he could not win militarily. And I think this is a very important thing for people to understand. Even with the Biden administration having twice blocked sending weapons before the war, even with the West being confused and chaotic and... Ranging from small countries who were desperately getting weapons in for a practical reason. If you're Estonia or Sweden or you're Latvia or Lithuania, you know you could be next. And so you want to stop Putin in Ukraine as a matter of your own survival as a country. And so lots of places were shipping something. And the Ukrainians suddenly found themselves. You may have seen the famous video of the tank column where all of a sudden off from one side comes a missile. And a tank blows up and then comes another missile and another tank blows up. And there are suddenly Russian tankers getting out of their tanks because they're caught in this column. They can't get off the road and their tank could be next. This is the sort of thing which has kept that huge, massive column blocked north of Kiev. The logistics have been terrible. They apparently came to Ukraine with like three days of food. They have not been able to refuel some trucks and tanks. And they've not been able to coordinate complex, large operations. And so the Russian military has been an enormous disappointment. Well, Putin's reaction wasn't to say, oh, gee, I guess we can't do this. His reaction was to say, look, if I can't beat you militarily, I'm going to shift to terror. And so what we have watched for two weeks with, frankly, a level of passivity that is disgusting and that sickens me is we have watched a deliberate terror campaign a terror campaign worthy of the Nazis bombing Warsaw, worthy of the kind of things that we saw in Spain during the Civil War there. There's just no question what he's doing. And that means that he is bombing maternity hospitals. The picture of the pregnant woman being carried out and later the fact that she and her baby both died is as good a symbol as you need of the cost of evil. And unfortunately evil is defeated by superior force. What defeated Hitler was a collection of allied armies that simply overwhelmed the Germans. What will ultimately stop Putin is a willingness of brave people to stand up to him and to be equipped with weapons. It frankly sort of drives me crazy to watch Western politicians dither and you know, So currently there's this conversation that says, well, We really shouldn't send them the MiG-29s they want, because we who are not there dying have decided in our infinite wisdom that we know better than the Ukrainians what they need, and what they need is surface-to-air missiles. Now, I'm all for surface-to-air missiles, and my answer would be fine. Ship them both, but do something. Don't just talk. Every day that the Western politicians, and in particular, the most powerful the most capable Western politicians, meaning the United States, every day that we spend talking is a day when Ukrainians are dying. Now, there should be something there that just humbles us and that makes us feel that cut through the baloney and do something. And yet what we get is a White House that is totally incompetent, a State Department that seems to be totally ineffective, and a defense department that seems to be totally clueless. And so what you have happening is, you know, countries like Estonia are more effective at getting weapons to Ukraine than the United States. Now, there's something just totally wrong about this. And even among the Republicans, you have all these arguments. I mean, I have to say that Lindsey Graham comes closest to getting it right when he just said, send something. You know, quit talking and send stuff. And frankly, If the Ukrainians believe that MiG-29s would raise their morale, give them the MiG-29s. This idea that some analyst at the State Department or the Defense Department, sitting in comfort, having driven in from Reston and on the way to a nice dinner at Georgetown, has decided in their infinite wisdom what Ukraine needs. There's something sick about that. I mean, it just verges on pathos. And then, frankly, one of the great lessons of this war should be Never send Kamala Harris anywhere. In terms of humiliating and undermining the prestige of the United States, her performance in Poland, when she had a joint press conference with the Polish president, and when she was asked about help for the Ukrainian refugees, and she broke up laughing and said, a friend in need is a friend indeed. And you thought to yourself, is this woman just nuts? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. What you have here is a California Looney Tunes, who wasn't too big a danger in the Senate because there are 99 other people to block her. But as vice president, the idea that they would send her anywhere to say anything is just scary, frankly. Any of you who've heard her, when she was asked to explain what's going on in the simplest terms, and she said, Ukraine is a small country in Europe next to a big country And the big country has attacked the small country, and that's just wrong. I mean, you listen to that and you think, this is the vice president of the most powerful nation in the world, and she's up against Putin. Now, this is like sending a tiny little baby bunny rabbit to take on a grizzly bear. I mean, it's amazing how much courage Ukrainians have, because they could have caved. They could have given up. They could have decided, you know, better red than dead. Well, they could have said better to be Russian and have Putin dominate us, but instead they said something which most Americans for most of our history would have identified with, that their country was worth fighting for, that they believed deeply in their cause, and that they weren't going to automatically collapse or automatically go away and do anything. Let me go back to where I started. There isn't any question about who Putin is. He's an evil man. He's the kind of man that the KGB loved. They were confident he would torture and kill if he had to. They were confident that he was brutal. They were confident that he had contempt for his fellow human beings. And he's proven it for 20 years. So the record's clear. Anybody who could be surprised that he might use chemical weapons or surprised that he might deliberately involve terror campaigns against buildings and hospitals, or surprised that he would take the risk of attacking a nuclear reactor, you have to say, where have you been for the last 20 years? What did you miss in the campaign in Chechnya in the late 90s? What did you miss in the last decade in Syria? How could you possibly not know this is who Putin is? Real question is, who are we? And historically, democracies avoid that identity question as long as they can. They focus on trivia as long as they can. They try to be, quote, reasonable as long as they can. They hope that there's some way to get, quote, a negotiated agreement. They worry about being too provocative. I mean, here's a guy who is bombing maternity hospitals, and the Biden administration worries about provoking him. Now, there's something totally unbalanced about this approach. And I think that it's important we understand that when confronted with evil, the only solution is to defeat it. Some people argue that we have to be timid and cautious because there's a danger of World War III. There's a danger of Putin using nuclear weapons. But here's the problem with that. If you're going to say, as President Biden has, oh, if you cross the NATO boundary, now that's real. And we would use the full power of the United States. But... We can't do anything effective in Ukraine because it might lead to World War III and to the use of nuclear weapons. What if Putin picks one country, Finland, which is not yet a member of NATO but wants to become one, or Estonia and says, if you don't let me have my way, I'll use nuclear weapons? Do we then say, well, okay, this one time you can get away with it, but next time will be tough? Or, in fact, do we, in the end, always have to cave in Because he can always threaten to use nuclear weapons. Or he can threaten to use chemical weapons. If tomorrow morning he hits Estonia, hits the Talon, the capital, with chemical weapons, what do we do? He said, if you help the Ukrainians, I have the right to hit you. Well, Estonians are helping Ukraine, very openly so, almost as an act of defiance. So then what do you do? Do you say, well, we really can't help Estonia, and that, which, by the way, means the end of NATO? Same thing happens to Taiwan and China. If Xi Jinping says, you know, we're going to invade Taiwan, and if you do anything to stop us, we'll use nuclear weapons. Do we then back down? The great problem here is that the age of diplomatic deterrence is over, and we have to profoundly rethink how to defend ourselves. There are going to be many countries with nuclear weapons, because one of the lessons of this attack is... If you don't have nuclear weapons, you're not safe. So in the next 20 years, you're likely to see 20 or 30 countries get nuclear weapons. They're not that expensive. They're going to be available in the open market. Places like North Korea and Pakistan will sell them. And so you're going to face this crisis over and over and over. I think that the only thing dictators respect is strength. And the general who said the other day that we should move three divisions into Eastern Europe right now. And we should move the accompanying air power right now. So it's sitting there. Now, my father served in the American Army during the Cold War. As a child, I grew up in places like Orléans, France, and Stuttgart, Germany. We were there with our families as a tripwire. And it was important that the families were there because it basically said to the Soviets, you know, you start killing American families and you're going to be in a gigantic war. And the Soviets believed that. And I think right now we have to, one, create a real sense at the boundaries of NATO of our absolute commitment. And given the weakness and the incompetence and the inarticulateness of the Biden-Harris team, they actually have to be stronger than you would have to be if you had normal levels of strength. Because they have to convince people that despite their linguistic incompetence, we're really serious. I think the idea of moving at least three divisions and the accompanying air power is probably about the right thing as a starting point. Second, I think we have to say to Putin, we are going to do what we think is effective in helping Ukraine win. And the fact that you picked this fight doesn't mean we have to allow you to define the terms of the fight. You have decided to use terror weapons against innocent civilians. We are going to do whatever it takes to help those innocent civilians win and we're not going to back down. And one step, for example, is to simply block the so-called 40,000 Syrians that he's trying to recruit and say, no, we're not going to let the airplanes fly. We're not going to let the ships float. You're not going to be able to get people from Syria to Russia. I mean, just look at a map. It's pretty easy to stop them from getting from Syria to Russia. If we're not capable of stopping Syrians who are being brought in specifically to brutalize and terrorize, you're not bringing in the Syrians to fight the Ukrainian army, you're bringing them in to terrorize civilians. And we ought to just say flatly, no, it's not going to happen. And if you don't back down, we have more than enough power in the Mediterranean to eliminate every asset you have in the Mediterranean and eliminate you as a power that they've worked for 20 years to build in that part of the world. If we don't have the courage to stand up and therefore we say, well, we really had no choice, where does it stop? Which threat do we finally say that's enough? And of course, in World War II, they didn't stop Hitler in 1935, 36, 37, 38. And then finally, in the fall of 39, they felt as he invaded Poland, they had no choice. And by then, the world had grown much worse. The Soviets had decided the West was so weak, they actually signed an agreement with Hitler. And the war became much worse than it would have at any point prior to that. What I fear most is, That at some point, the Ukrainians, who are in the middle of a terror campaign, will decide that the world's not going to help them, that they have to cut a deal, and that they will decide to basically accept some kind of limited Ukrainian independence. And in that process, that Putin will survive, he'll be strengthened at home, he will actually be the winner. That will be a tragedy for the world, and that would be a very very dangerous world. So I think we have to have a resolution that we are not only going to protect and work with the Ukrainians, but we are ultimately have as a goal driving Putin from power so the world learns you can't run campaigns of war crimes. You can't routinely savage innocent people. You can't use terror weapons and expect to survive. Anything short of that will make the world dramatically more dangerous. And I think that is what we have to learn from the current disaster. Thank you for listening. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.